0: Welcome beautiful ones thank you so much for joining us we trust that you are in the heart space now centering in and feeling this true essence of you it begins in the heart and it is this now moment that we greet you in love and light today we are going to hear the fascinating story of a near-death experience, actually a two-time near-death experiencer who truly knows what it's like in the afterlife, in the place of no things. Peter Panagor is here with us. He is the author of Heaven is Beautiful, How Dying Taught Me That Death Is Just the Beginning, Let's welcome Peter Panagor to Quantum Conversations. Hello, Peter. Thank you for being here.
1: Thanks, Lauren. Thank you for asking me. And hello, everyone. Glad to be here.
0: You have a beautiful YouTube channel, Not Church Sundays. And we recommend that our listeners check you out because the vibration of your voice, your whole experience, on your journey is what you bring forward now for our planet to really help everyone see the divine see the divine not only in ourselves but in the world around us and this is going to be a beautiful conversation we do not need a near-death experience you've had two of them you do not recommend them but the story is something that is so profound and it changes all who hear your story. So let's start with what happened to you. You had two near-death experiences. Can you share those?
1: Yes, thank you. I'll briefly tell why I was in the position I was in, then I'll tell the first afterlife story, and then I'll skip way far ahead to the second time I died much more recently. So I I was an undergraduate, and at Montana State University. And I went in March vacation with another member of the outdoor club to go to Canada and the Rocky Mountains to go snow caving for our vacation, our two week vacation, and then top it off with an ice climb. I was an outdoors enthusiast, a winter outdoors enthusiast. And so I was in my element uh, through training and experience. And the snow caving was very fun, but the ice climb was deadly. I didn't have all the gear that I needed for the climb. I'd, I was a novice ice climber. I was an experienced mountaineer, but not on ice. And I couldn't come up with all of the gear that I needed. I came up short, one ice axe. I had one ice axe, and I had an ice hammer, which is much shorter and the wrong tool for the job and anybody who knows anything about tools knows the right tool for the right job makes everything go easier and so my hammer in my hand slowed our climb by half so by the time we reached the top of the climb that evening we were there at sunset when we were supposed to be in our car snug with the heater on
0: Mm -hmm.
1: we were about five or six hundred feet up and the temperature went down with the sun about 30 degrees. I'm guessing the temperature plummeted into the dark. We were about an hour, a day's drive from the Arctic circle and it was March. And Tim hauled up the rope, my climbing partner and a mountaineer friend. And the rope became a very large knot and hypothermia set in. And we were in a desperate situation quite immediately climbing isn't the kind of thing like backpacking where you get halfway up a mountain and you can decide oh it's it's raining out we're going to go back to the car ice climbing you have to keep going straight up you can't turn around and go back you have to to go back you have to get to the top so we knew we were in trouble long before we got to the ledge we were seated we were seated on Hyperthermia set in as i mentioned and it was violent shivers and through the night we progressed uh, through all of the stages of hypothermia, and we knew that we would die where we were seated if we stayed and we thought we might not die if we moved. And so in the dark, uh, once our long night began, we began our traverse and then our rappels back down to the bottom and encountered all sorts of problems along the way. And in the dark mostly, and. Eventually, the moon rose enough to see pretty clearly by the time we reached the third rappel. And by this stage, we were in not quite the end of the hypothermic progression of death, of dying rather, but we were close to it. And when we reached this final ledge, we were about 150 feet up. And I'll run quickly through the hypothermic situation I was in with Tim. Tim was to my left, and we were both on harnesses with straps in harnesses with straps uh, pinned into the mountain and there were permanent straps and permanent iron bins so we were safe where we were standing but our situation was desperate it was hours before dawn we had i had frostbite on my fingers and my nose and my toes and my feet were blocks of ice and i'd gone from violent shivering in my hypothermic state to uh loss of coordination and frozen face and freezing brain and loss of cognitive capacity. And now as I stood there, I was in the situation where I got hot, which is the end of the beginning of the end. Uh, I'm not actually hot. I wasn't actually hot. I was cold. I was freezing. I was 150 feet up. I could see the stars overhead by the tens of millions of every color you can imagine, so far north with no light pollution, and the stars reflected off the mountain that was not far from us, all covered with snow. It was utterly beautiful, and I felt all the heat from my limbs rush to the core of my body, and I thought, oh, I can lose a hand My heart will survive. And then I opened my coat because I was hot and I knew I shouldn't because I was a ski patrol and national ski patrol. I knew better, but I didn't care about my training and I unzipped my coat. Tim warned me not to do it, but I did it anyway and my temperature went down faster. And the rope was tied to my harness, one end of it, and the other end I had tossed off around the corner. And on the very first pull, it jammed. And so we were stuck there by the time I opened my coat. We'd been stuck there for hours. The rope had no slack in it, and I couldn't climb back up the rope or the mountain to release it. And the only desperate thing we could do was yank on the rope, and I had to yank on the rope myself because Tim couldn't reach it. And so then this is what happened. A peace settled over me. I'd been terrified all night and I, I tell this story in this calm voice, but only because of only because I did some soul retrieval and faced my trauma in twenty sixteen by going back to the same place for the mm. first time. And I I now don't cry every time I tell the story. Mm. So good healing there yeah so I'd been terrified all night, and I'd been driven towards survival in a in a in a very much like a a wild human sort of survival way. I wasn't desperate in my mind like crazy nervous and and lose my head. I was determined and frightened and level headed and a peace settled over me. And I realized that there was nothing I could do. My hypothermic state was too advanced. The rope was stuck. We, we couldn't go down and we couldn't go up. And so I just relaxed and I accepted what had terrified me all night because there was no way out of it. And I started thinking about my family and, um, My sister had run away when I was 14, and uh, my, my family experienced it as a vanishing, even though she popped in and out by postcard at Christmas. It broke my family pretty badly, and I was in Montana to get away. But I couldn't. The way my family experienced my sister's loss was loss. The grief of feeling like someone's dead and they're not they they're gone from your life but you can't grieve them as dead but you you don't know whether they're alive and i thought to myself i can't can I, I can't stop my dying and my parents are going to lose another child and i thought about god and i hope that's not a trigger word for people because for me god is is ineffable infinite love, unspeakable bliss. But I didn't know that then. And then I began to fall asleep and I would collapse and I would stand back up and collapse and stand back up. And this last time I stood up after falling asleep, my peripheral vision filled in with a black circle, like a fade to black on a spotlight on a stage. And and. And my my tunnel vision. I got tunnel vision. It's the last thing that happens in hypothermia. And my vision closed very quickly, like an aperture, whoosh, closed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I didn't lose consciousness. I watched it close. I didn't know what was going on, and I watched it close. I was confused, and I didn't lose consciousness. And I thought, why am I, why, why am I still conscious? Why haven't I fallen? Why am I awake? And, and I, then the mountain, I felt like my eyes were open, but my, I knew when my eyes were shut, but I could see where the mountain had been, this it infinite expanse of darkness that went off into beyond my sight. And yet it wasn't pitch dark like a room where you shut the door and all the curtains are drawn and you can't see your hand, I could see far, far away a pinprick of light and it flew at me across this, this infinite expanse and as it came at me at an impossible speed, it enlarged and reached for me and communicated to me with this reaching, I'm taking you, no language, Non, non-linguistic, telepathic. I'm taking you. It tells me, and I say in my mind, no. And I put up all of my willpower of survivalism from the night of my trauma to try to stay where I am, and I couldn't. It took me like I was nothing. And suddenly, this I was enveloped in this in intelligence, this all-powerful intelligence, like a rag doll in a, in, a, in, a, in a river. I had no control at all, and I was. Commu- it was still communicating to me uh, power and comfort, and I was comfortable, and I was unafraid, and I relaxed, and I was carried inside, enveloped in, and I could see myself out from the outside and the inside. And I could see myself traveling up like the like a tunnel, but the, but it was the t- a tunnel of darkness inside the vast expanse of darkness, and then I was projected into or the entity, the angel unfolded, and I suddenly found myself in uh, what I describe as metaphorically the uh, great illuminated darkness the great illuminated eternal darkness and i was alone and i could see in every direction all at once and i could see deep into well i would say infinity but i couldn't see the end of it but it was the deepest i'd ever seen until today until i go back i guess i mean to say and i was a an expanded size of myself. I was no longer physical at all. I had no matter and no molecules. And I was an an orb of consciousness, metaphorically speaking. And everything I say is metaphor because it's all this, all these um, dichotomies and uh, polarities and it's all these opposites and timelessness and all time, all at once in the now, all the time there was, is, and will be in every direction time flows. All right, there, and I was this this intelligent orb. Uh, My whole being was a single thing. It wasn't like having a body and a brain and an eye and a thumb. It was all one thing. My thinking was my being, and I was much larger. And I could see in every direction at once, like ten thousand eyes or a single eye. The all-seeing eye was me. And I was comfortable. I was remembering this is who I am. This is what I am. This is what I've always been. How did I not know this? How did I not see this? And I was in comfort with a capital C. And then because of it's timelessness, the way I describe this, Loren, is in a sequence, but it's not really a sequence. I don't know. I, I, I learned how to... Talk about the unspeakable. And there this is a place of no thingness. No thingness. There is no thing here. And this Well I'll just
0: Would keep some on. call it the void?
1: I think some would call it the void, but that indicates an emptiness. And uh-huh. it was not empty, it was a fullness. Okay. It was a fullness and an emptiness. It's this I I, I be, So this is this is how it what happened like a portal and opened uh, like a doorway or the light appeared to me or but it was this flowing flowing covering that was translucent and transparent and solid all at the same time and it was right next to me and I could see through it and through it was a tunnel that went way arcing way into this infinite distance and I reached with my beingness my my myself and i touched this flow of light and it flowed into me and as it flowed into me all these things happened at once it was all life it was i knew i was in the the presence of the creator of all that the that the void in which i was was the body of the oneness of being there was no separation between the this void this threshold this heaven that i was in and the being itself but it it became more manifest to me and flowed inside of me and it infilled me and all these things happened at once the i saw myself as i was as a human I saw. I went through my life review. I knew that I'd been known as a human being from the moment of my birth, and I, I I knew more than that. I knew that I had been known from the moment of my creation as a soul self, as a as a as a photon, as a singular, as a singular portion of of the same unlimited divine being. I saw my I saw my origin. I saw that I saw that the, the infinite unlimited number of Photons by the tens of gazillions that the the divine is and I was a singular separated less than one, but of the same substance sort of superpositioned between the the divine being and my being created by the divine being. I was I was breathed in the Christian language, breathed into being, or I was a separate photon that was emanating from the divine self and my soul was this elongated wall wide and broad thing that that even though i was being created in the now i because i was in the timelessness i also had this long eons life and in those lives i in that life of my soul i saw these very very small thin sections of other living lives that i had or was, I can't tell, because I was in timelessness, whether these other lives were in sequence, whether they were, even now I cannot see if they were on earth, I don't know. I just know that that I had these other incarnations, but none of them were actually me. Me, the I that I actually am, is this soul consciousness self in which those little thin slices interjected and I, I and I could hear the voice, the voice inside me, showing, saying, revealing, expressing all of this without language, all at once. And I saw my known life that I had lived as Peter, and I went through my life review. And in the life review, I suffered all of the pain I ever gave away in my life. Everything, every decision I made about the suffering that I wanted someone to have because they hurt me or because I was angry or because of whatever reason I was jealous or whatever it was, I, whatever pain I gave away, I experienced that pain from the point of view of the person that I gave it to times 10,000. It was massive amounts of pain that I gave away. And I was just a 21-year-old regular kid. And I... Saw their suffering from their point of view, and I and it was juxtaposed to all of my rational choices that I created in my head, all my judgments for causing their pain, and so all of my karma was that all the suffering I gave away, I gave to myself, and it was much larger than I had. I had no idea how much pain I had given away. And I, I saw, I saw that there was this like a field of, of of creation. I could see all of humanity, and I could see that all of us were built into this system, this matrix, this um, gaming system, where we we didn't create the rules. We're living out the life, and everyone had hurt everyone everybody hurt everybody and that's just the nature of what it is to be a human being and it's not my fault it wasn't my fault that i caused the pain that i caused and even the unintentional pain that i caused it was just the structure of the of the whole universe built this way and yet i so there was this great equality I saw this great equality of human brokenness in comparison to the to the purity of the divine self the purity of the love where there was was no suffering and no judgment and no corruption just love speaking inside me saying i love you i love you i made you i know you there's nothing unknown about you i've always known you i've always loved you you're my beloved you're my beloved and 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 i and i saw that all of the love that i'd given away in my life and all the love that had been given to me i got to keep that with me that was with me and and sort of through that lens of the love that i experienced in my life despite seeing myself as guilty for a self-evidently guilty self-judgment not because I had been bad but because of the purity of the light itself that I was less than and I wasn't my guilt wasn't so much that I had been bad it was just that I that the light was so good and and because because of the voice inside me, I love you, I made you, I, I forgive you, I turned to look through this lens of love and I was instantly infilled, re-emerged with this all love living inside me, this flow in of this these things that we divide on earth, we love and joy and beauty, truth, humility, knowledge, understanding, intellect, bliss, wholeness, healing, Fullness, adoration, awe, peace, truth, all these things, they're, they're all one thing. They're all this oneness. And it flowed inside me and infilled me to an expansive side, size, where I felt like if a uh, uh, one more bit of this union were to enter into me, I would obliterate. And I was, I was in love. I was, I, I, all my pain was forgotten. All my life was forgotten. Everything was gone from me. And all I was was basking in this unity of being. And even the unity of being with with which I was experiencing was still nowhere near the strength of the infinite self. It was just a small taste of it. And it was so overwhelmingly self reflective and recognizing. I could see more truly who I was. And who I was, was beloved. And and then I said, am I dead? No mouth, no lips no words, and the voice, which was, which was, I I couldn't see the voice. It was, I I knew that it was right beside me. I knew that it was all around me. I knew it was the infinity and and I could hear it inside me, but I couldn't see it. I could only see this bliss and beauty. And it spoke and it said, yes, you're dead. And I said, but I haven't gone through that tunnel, down the tunnel yet. And the voice said, no, you haven't. Come along. And I said, basically, wait a minute. Oh, my parents are suffering. I can't lose another child. And in that instant, I was swept at faster than the speed of thought across this heaven I was in, with the, which was the body of the divine. But also the divine sort of grabbed me and flew beside me and carried me and and brought me to the edge of where our universe begins and heaven ends. At this intersecting point, sort of like being up above the earth, looking down from Oh, no, I don't know, a satellite between the Earth and the moon. I could see all of the Earth and every human being on it, every single 7 billion living, loving, hating, warring, sexing hungry starving living dying birthing human being doing everything that they do all at this time that i could see them and everyone's covered by this this veil and everyone is doing their thing and the voice says to me in the way that i love you now and it showed me this infinite nature of love that had been unrevealed to me till that point the it said to me i have always loved you in the way that i love you now and i could see that since my creation some e- e- forever ago some eons and eons ago that i had been beloved with more love than than if you took all of the multiverses and crushed them into one ball it that would be too small for the for the time and depth and length of love that was flooding into me in the permanent now. I love you then. I love you now. I love you always. I love every single human being this way. This particular love that you feel of being my beloved one is how I love everyone. They can't see it on earth and you couldn't see it on earth, but you see it now. And because you now know this and because you know the length of your human life was the wink of your eye, that your parents will be soon ended with life and be in this bliss with you. And when the voice mentioned my parents, I could then see their faces and their suffering, and I could see the future that they would have without me and their suffering, and their quickness of arrival, and I could see a parallel life with me and their quickness of arrival and the 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 difference between their suffering on one life to live and the other life that could be was big enough for me to, even though I knew, even though I understood the brevity of life and the bliss that awaited them and the healing and the wholeness that they would feel unburdened, I said, I can't go yet. Why not? I had another commitment. I was in a theater company going on a national tour to the university. And I said, I'd like to go back. And the voice said, well, we'd like you to stay, but I haven't gone. No, you haven't through that tunnel. Could I come back to this? unitive state of bliss and love and understanding and knowledge, anything I wanted to know, everything I wanted to know, and I wanted to know everything about everything. Everything I wanted to know was instantly in fullness downloaded into me. My my brain, not in the way of my thinking, not in the way of my absorbing of information. I just absorbed everything I needed to know as soon as I thought it. And so when I asked, can I come back here? I knew that I could. I couldn't, I could come back. And I said, well, then I choose to live my life. And the voice said, you won't live your life. And sent me on my way. And on my way, I had to make a choice. The voice said to me, choose. And in front of me were A million entry points like doorways, like a big circle of doorways, a million doorways to go back into my life. And I had a moment to look and to think. And I could see that in the very center of the circle and the innermost door was a beam of purity of light. And then I could see that that faded to the far edges. And I thought to myself, I want some self-autonomy. I want to live a creative life. I want to be a bohemian writer, and I picked my door with that thought. And it wasn't the center of the light; it was off to the side, some distance away. And the next thing I knew, I was cre- being reduced in size like a like a balloon, like an air balloon put in nitro, nitro, nitrous. What is that? Frozen liquid. <laughs> ah I blanked on the word but anyway mm-hmm. I was compressed down from a much greater size and mm. squeezed back inside my body again
0: squeezed back inside your body like did you feel Suffering. like you could bring all of it with you
1: no i became reduced reduced and reduced and reduced Unable to, I lost my capacities to hold it. And I was much, to fit inside my body, I had to be 10,000 times smaller than I was, than I am, than I actually am. And the first sensation was suffering. The suffering, my, my world was suffering.
0: Cause here you are frozen back in this body okay and the integration then integrating this oh my goodness what happens next
1: well i suffered that was the most shocking thing i didn't i understood where i had been Mm. but i didn't understand suffering anymore i'd forgotten suffering and suffering overwhelmed me Mm. and and being in the body was so carnal so crude so less than and it took a time for me to float to my surface of my brain my brain to come back online my frozen brain to start mm-hmm. to function again and, and and as it began to function i the more it functioned the more i felt the more i felt the more i suffered until i my hearing started to come back online and i could feel my body jostling and and, and i heard screaming that was in I couldn't understand it and uh, and I felt myself being pulled up and I opened my eyes and there was this thing that I couldn't comprehend. I didn't understand where I was or what I was or who Tim was or anything. I was all new to me and he pulled me up and I Got to stand. My body stood, and I slowly came back to myself, and I realized I was back in my body, and where I was. And he was screaming at me. And when I finally heard what he was saying, he was screaming at me, "You are dead! You are dead!" And he was crying and crying. Yeah. And this man was the most level-headed man i 'd ever been with. He, we, he never lost his cool. He, in, but it, 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 the, the fear of the mm. dire situation and and i finally understood i i must have looked at him blankly because i couldn't understand what was wrong and he got me to pull the rope after some time and the rope by my falling on the ledge or i don't know why the rope came free on the first pull and we repelled down the to the to the bottom to the ground and we went to the car, which was not far away. Is right, you know, it's a the the climb is right on the Icefields Parkway. And we went to the parking lot, and we got the tent, and we set it up. And my my brain was back online again, and I knew how to deal with hypothermia. And so I took us through the slow warming of our bodies inside the tent with tea and sleeping bags and and time. And
0: oh. <laughs> I'm surprised that you didn't throw in the towel that you went and continued camping <laughs> oh
1: i i i um uh it's uh, yeah well I, wow. haven't ice, I haven't ice climbed since but i yes. you know i was I, before this happened i was an adventurer I'm still an adventurer, I, you know? And one of the after effects of my near-death is I decided long, long ago, I was going to have as much fun with my body as I possibly could, and that meant adventure. And mm-hmm. so I've been doing that as much as I can ever since. It's just not as, I haven't gone ice climbing.
0: <laughs> uh, well, the, t- the tools today, rather than 1980, the equipment's better. For sure. Oh, much. Oh, I would go again.
1: I would go again. I'm still a skier. I still I have skied in very cold weather and I still i am a mountain skier and I'm a sailor, solo sailor. And heck, before before we uh, got on this call, I, I was uh, it's blowing 45 miles an hour out there. It's like well below zero. I went skating. <laughs> it's like there nice you go. good.
0: Life is good. Wow. What if fa- and that's, that's this is the first near death experience yep. and how integrating this this has got to have changed your life um you know when when we look and we see the pain that we give was that the big thing that you noticed or was that a big change big. how did you change i mean how do you come back from that
1: i lived a different life Mm. I didn't come back to the life I lived. The life I lived was over. I was not the same person. I, I lived in the same body. My, I, let me put it this way: I kept it a secret for for twenty years, and a, a couple summers ago.
0: You didn't lived, tell your parents or anything. I didn't tell anybody.
1: I told I told my wife the day. How About after.
0: your friend? No, who said I, you were? Oh, how oh, did no, you? Oh no,
1: he was an atheist. Oh we, my! We, religion was off. So you just table. go
0: in. You just go into your tent and have some tea and warm up, and
1: well, and
0: and you know it was more involved
1: than that. We the, yes. the the he Tim Tim owned a really really nice winter tent, and a winter tent can come equipped with a chimney, and a, an mm. air vent. And so, because of the chimney and the air vent, we could heat, fire up our two stoves, our propane. Uh, I guess I had a uh, white gas stove inside the tent and actually heat the space. Mm-hmm. So we mm-hmm. heated the space, we heated water, we drank warm water, not hot water, we got inside our sleeping bags, and we just kept applying um, warm water to our insides and heat to the tent that we were in. And eventually, we got to the position where I thought it was safe enough that we could get in the car and fire up the heater. Because, you, you know, you heat up your body too fast with hypothermia, it'll, that'll kill you. Um,
0: mm. Okay. Yeah. So, so. All right. So that was the big. That was the thing: is to get your bodies warmed up again, and and the the small talk about wow, you were dead. It was that. That was survival.
1: You were oh, yeah. still in
0: survival mode.
1: We were still in survival mode. Survival mode. Oh yeah. We, it was still a desperate situation, and and besides that. We hadn't eaten uh, since we ran out of food. We, you know, we had a snack at like four, three, or two o'clock, whatever that was. And we were skinny, mini, you know, twenty-year-olds, and our bodies were consuming themselves. We were famished, we were frozen, um, mm. and we were scared. Not only my my situation had changed. I fear fear had gone from me. I was mostly in a place of wonderment. I was I, I felt like I was i was I was operating in the world according to the things that needed to be done in order to make my body survive, but in my head, I didn't understand where I had been and what had happened to me, but I knew that I was an alien in this body. I was not the same person, and so I felt like I was trying to pretend so that he mm-hmm. wouldn't notice and i and I couldn't tell him what happened um and and the two days later so uh, so terrible things happened after this (laughs) terrible things we got arrested we got put in jail we paid our way out of jail we totaled the car against a semi and and then tim took the the little money we had left and took a bus with our skis because we've been snow caving and i took some of the climbing gear that i could carry and i hitchhiked back to bozeman and on that second morning i decided i was never going to tell anybody because inside of me there was this Roaring sound i kept i didn't I didn't say this, Lorraine, but I should have I heard my soul name called when I saw the origin of myself, I heard the name that was spoken that brought me into being, but it has I can't say it no tongue, no lips, no words, no no sound can carry it, but it was still being called inside me. I could hear this voice inside me roaring to me louder than my own thought. Roaring inside me, this, this magnificent voice, the same voice, but muted here, speaking my name, calling my soul, calling me and calling me and telling me to speak, but took, but also took all my words. I speak this and, and I could hear this inside me and, and I, how could, I, I couldn't even say what it was to myself. Let alone speak any words about it. I was, I was muted by it. I, I couldn't say it. I didn't know how to talk about it. I had no words for it. I barely had understanding of it. And so I made it back to Bozeman and I went on this theater tour with this theater company, college-based, all over the United States, and I took my sleeping bag. And I was supposed to be in the van or drive the pickup truck, but I took my sleeping bag and my pad, and I went in the back of the truck by myself. I spent 24,000 miles alone in the back of the pickup truck because I couldn't face anybody. And I dove into my meditation. I'd been meditating since 77. This was 80 I had the great fortune of, of, uh, st- learning the practice of centering prayer, which is a Zen sort of compilation with, uh, Trappist contemplation and Maharishi Mahayogi's, uh, meditation forms all kind of mushed into one out of a particular Trappist monastery where I went to, near where I went to Catholic school. And so I dove into my meditative life and I found inside myself that silence, that peace, that space. And I and it was my – all I wanted was it. I wanted to go back. I regretted coming here. I, I, I regretted the moment I woke up. It was a mistake. There's so much suffering.
0: Yes, I was going to ask. Okay, so, you know, you spent – after that experience, here you come back into the tent, and then you guys continue on your way, and that's not so good. Your friend totals his car. Can you see now why – that happened so that you two could go your separate ways to allow you to integrate?
1: Only I totaled this car.
0: You totaled the car. Maybe uh, that was your higher self.
1: Yeah, well, the, the, it, it it could have been, but also it was definitely exhaustion. Um,
0: wow. And so then, yeah, to, for, the, for you to come back to that...
1: Yeah, it was, I ended up with a stutter. So, so now I've got a, because of the car wreck, I die. This doesn't give me a stutter. The, the, the totaling of the car gives me a stutter. This theater company I was in was for the deaf and I was a mm. mime. And so I didn't have to speak, thank God. But, oh. but, right. But I had a, <laughs> I had a very noticeable stutter whenever I spoke. And so I, I, but for the next three or four months, I could speak in sign language because everybody else could speak sign language. So it was, so I could, and I didn't stutter in sign. Um, so everybody knew something had happened to me, but I told them it was a car wreck. I told them, you know, it was the car wreck, The, you know, that's what happened to me. And I just need to be by myself and I can't drive the van anymore. And, and then I, I,
0: I got. Oh, you, you didn't even tell you the people that you guys almost died of hypothermia, uh, or did you share oh, a little bit of that fact nothing you didn't say that nothing. you guys like got stuck on the mountain
1: oh we said i got stuck on the mountain okay. that was the uh, summation uh, of it no we okay. got stuck on the mountain but it all worked out
0: and your friend didn't say he was dead
1: no i no. i i well he was quite angry at me after i totaled his car
0: yeah because that comes in and takes yeah okay
1: and so he didn't wow. talk to me I had two or three weeks before we left on this tour, and he was so angry at me. Um, oh. and so i I never saw him again. okay. Oh, wait a minute, that's that's not quite true. I saw him one more time. Did I see him? I saw him when he dropped off the ski gear. Yeah, that was before we left. He came to my I lived in a cooperative, and he came to my cooperative, and we shook hands. We did because he knew that he knew what kind of night we had had. He knew, so we parted on good terms, but he also said he couldn't be my friend anymore. And that was it. And I left on the tour. And when I came back, I wasn't from Montana. He was from Iowa. I was from Boston. And by the time I came back from the tour, um, school was ending and that was that.
0: Mm, Never okay. saw him again. <sighs> wonder if he has ever looked back at that time. I hope so. I wrote
1: wrote a letter in my book and uh, Heaven is Beautiful but my publisher took it out. I had a Dear Tim letter and uh, the publisher said, if he reads the book he'll know it's him. If he's ever told the story to anybody and they read the book, they'll know it's him because I call him Tim in the the book.
0: The names have not been changed to protect the, name, the innocent.
1: <laughs> no, um, and so I hope that someday I hear from him, but I don't know that I will. And okay. You you but, asked about how it changed me, and I don't I don't want to lose that yes. because because. Yes. Because I I I went back home and um my life completely changed. I was going to go into architecture. My dad was president of the AIA in Massachusetts and I'd been training as a you know, at the drafting board since I was a little kid with a pencil in my hand. My family's artistic. I worked in construction for four years to kind of, you know, get the the ground level understanding of how things are put together and know what the people are like. And then I was going to go to graduate school. I was an English major, but I was going to be an architect. And that was no, that definitely did not happen. And I, I, by the time my experience at UMass, where I was an undergraduate in the English department, as I mentioned, ended, I was I, I was taking classes in comparative mysticism, East and West. And I decided having studied this now because I was looking for language. I was looking for language. I, I I knew that there must be other I hoped that there must be other people like me in the world. Because I knew that I had experienced this really radical thing where I had no self left. I was I was in this state of adoration that I can't put into words to you. Where where all I was was this oneness itself and i wanted to find out if i was alone and so i started studying this and i and i interviewed at uh, uh, princeton and uh, harvard came to school looking from the divinity schools and i interviewed at those two schools and i went down and interviewed at yale and i decided to study mysticism i decided to get a graduate degree at these (laughs) these super secular um universities mm. that didn't teach mysticism except for Princeton they had one class but i but i looked at the curriculum and i found that 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 i could com- i could cobble together a study of mysticism and nobody would know so this, uh, so i i studied mysticism other than my dean knowing who was my tutor who i spoke to last week by the way she's like 93 um she she took me as an independent study student so that i could study mysticism which i didn't tell my parents i was doing um, mm. Or uh, that my classmates knew, but but I was I was on an exploration of language. I I wanted language. I wanted to find my peer group, and I wanted to most desperately find tools to go home again. I wanted. Yes. I wanted that.
0: Mm. Yes, yes, that <clears throat> very interesting. How that experience led you right into it right into it totally shifted everything everything and no longer giving pain to people did you find that that you were a gentler person
1: yeah i was going to mention and i'm glad you said that uh, that i after a few years ago i asked my parents my my parents didn't after i even came out my parents didn't believe me that took a long time to like you died Mm um okay but my, but uh-huh. I asked him a couple years ago I said so did you notice anything different about me when I came back and my dad said yeah Pete we did your mom and I talked and we noticed that you were compassionate it's not that you weren't kind before mm. it's just you were different and yeah. i i think the 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 thing that impressed upon me the most was is is that is that i can't help because i'm a human being There's nothing I can do that can stop me from hurting other people, except I can choose to the best of my ability to live through the lens of love in in a real. And this is real life. This isn't like like, you know, candles, incense and candles and flowers. This is like living real life among people. And I was a I was a church pastor. I hid in the church. I was a—I was like a secret agent in the church, uh, uh, working on behalf of the divine among in this place of, of narrow theology. But I—I I found that that every I approach everything, everything that I approach, I try to lean toward love, and it gets me in trouble, um, and it 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 creates beauty and it creates difficulty. But I but I find that. I don't you know, people put up their hands and say, No judgment, hey, no judgment. That is I can't see anything other than the light of other people. And that has gotten me into trouble because I see into their I see into their soul. I see the goodness that they are made of and I and I sometimes um, forget that their physical body and their biology might not be in the same place as their soul. And it has been a It's been as much of a curse as a blessing. Interesting. But I try to
0: live compassionately. That is beautiful. I can feel that. I think we can all sense that and seeing the power of our words. I love how you said you saw it through their points of view. And it does come back to the judgments and what we create in our mind. So just to shift your perspective in that. And again, this is your first near death experience. Another one happened in 2015. 2015. Mm. Now, what I want to share with everyone is that you are a wealth of information. We're going to bring you into a mastery empowerment course, a two hour online event for people to learn some of the tools that you have actually brought forward from this experience from your whole life and that will go deeper but let's hear more about your second near-death experience so here you go here where you're you're becoming uh, um, in the mysticism world and finding tools to go home again but yet there was something else that needed to be witnessed by you so let's let's go to that story well,
1: I, I came back the first time for the, for the sake of love, for my parents, and the second time I did the same. And so in between 1980 and 2015, I, I spent my life diving as deep inside myself for, and opening myself and emptying myself as much as I possibly can in secret, not telling anybody that I was doing this, mm-hmm. because it didn't make any difference <laughs> if they knew or they didn't know. And so... And I thought they'd think I was crazy anyway, so so I came back unafraid of death, like fearless about death, not afraid of dying can be difficult, but death is beautiful, and so, in two thousand and fifteen, um I had gone running the day before, I ran three miles a day before, and I was in a yoga class. Um, I've been practicing yoga for 40 years, and I I use a a form of uh, Kriya yoga inside my Hatha yoga or vinyasa or whatever they they happen to be teaching. But I I work my interior yoga. I do interior yoga, and I found, as Paramahansa Yogananda promised, um, chakras are real. I, uh, I live with them. And so mm. I, I practice my yoga and I was in I was late to this class because well, but the teacher is a friend of mine. She let me set up my mat in the doorway because it's summertime and the place is crowded. And so I start doing yoga and it's hot. Everybody's doing hot yoga. And part of the part of the one of the after effects of my yoga practice is that I can raise my, my yoga raises my prana without any heat. Like I get hot like i i fling sweat just as a result of my body in flames and so i'm not a big fan of hot yoga and it was hot and i started within a minute in downward dog i'm like why am i sweating so much i had not done a, you know i'm in downward dog and and so i thought oh my gosh i i don't feel well and so i lay down on my mat and i'm lying on my mat and I'm, and everything, you know she's going through telling the class what to do and my eyes are closed and i'm like my heart hurts. Why does my heart hurt? Why am I sweating so much? What? Oh. I'm having a heart attack. I'm having a heart attack. I had been, I had been an ambulance attendant after National Ski Patrol and And I knew we had heart problems in my family. That's why I was, you know, I eat well and I exercise because I'm trying to keep, you know, the ticker working. Killed my grandfather, would have killed my dad, but for a life flight in the early 80s to uh, uh, an experimental hospital in Massachusetts where they shot him up with the drug they were experimenting with, which was a decoagulant, which saved his life. And And it eventually killed my sister who was lost. So this, you know, it's a family genetic thing. And so I'm lying in the yoga class going, oh, this is, I get to die today. Today is my day. And I've been praying for my death for the whole time. I—that's Also, my secret prayer of my life was, God, take me home today. Can I go home today? Today's a good day to die. Let me go home. Take me home. Is my job done? And so I'm lying there like, I'm going to die in front of these people. I can't do that. So I got up and I went outside and I lay down and I sit down in the chair and I'm like, ah, I got to lie down. I lie down in the grass and I'm lying in the, in the dew of the cool of the grass and the shade of the building. And, and I'm thinking to myself, I really am dying. They're going to come outside and they're going to find my body here. That's too bad. But I get to go home. And I thought, well. Maybe I should maybe I should try to not die today. Maybe I should try because my daughter had just left a a marriage. Uh, Her husband went off to Afghanistan and very terrible, terrible things happened to him there. And he came back uh, like lots of vets with what they call moral injury. And they just had a baby and she had just left him. And she was, you know, she just left him. And I thought, I can't, I can't leave them alone. And so I tried to sit up and I couldn't. And so I'll, I'll cut the story short to to get into the, the emergency urgent care center. And when I got to the urgent care center, uh, one of the yoginis had given me a ride there. When I convinced her that I was dying, she's like, Oh, all right. So, can I call the ambulance? No, I don't think they'll make it in time. I think we should drive. So, we drove over there. It was a mile away. And, and I had a hundred percent blockage in my widowmaker, um, artery. And it's, that's what they call it. They call it the widowmaker. And I was a hundred percent blocked. And, uh, I was an, by this point, I was already 45 minutes into my golden hour. And they said, we're going to we can give you this decoagulant and give you a trickle through maybe a three percent trickle through that might get you might get you to the catheterization lab, which is two an hour and a half away. And uh, so I said, well, all right, let's give it a try. My wife shows up. My, my son is there. He's in his 20s and they shoot me up with this decoagulant and they're going to give me morphine for the pain. And they call the ambulance to drive me the hour and a half. And I'm like, don't give me any morphine. I'm like, well, doesn't it hurt? Well, it's like an elephant standing in tree pose on my heart. But yeah, it hurts. But I can't take opiates. I'll be vomiting in the back of the ambulance. I'm sensitive to them. I know this about myself. I've had them before. And how are you going to deal with your pain? I'm going to meditate the whole way. You're going to what? I'm going to focus my mind and my breath on my pain with the fullness of my intent and when i do that i get to rise above my pain as long as i hold my mind directly on my pain it's a it's a it's a meditation technique that anybody can do that's super simple and it doesn't take much practice and i've been doing it for 40 years and so i get on the gurney and off i go and as i go my son grabs my hand and he leans in and he says, I love you, Dad. And he looks me in the eyes and he's tearful. And and I'm, I love you, Andy. And and I look over at my wife who's standing next to me and she got my other hand. And I look up at her and I, I smiled at her, I'm like give her a wink. And I'm thinking to myself, honey, you're going to be fine. You know this about me. I've been waiting to go home and today's my day.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so they load me in the ambulance and off I go. Summer traffic, an hour and a half down through vacation land highway um, state of maine summer summertime and and on the way uh, i hear the EMT, paramedic i'm sorry the paramedic i hear her radio in because i'm conscious because when you meditate you hear everything around you you can hear everything when you meditate the trick is to focus continue your focus and let the sounds flow by you and only when i heard her radio in say i'm we're losing him I, mm. That didn't flow by me, and mm. so I kind of grabbed that, and I opened my eyes and I looked up at her, and I got a you know an O2 mask on, and I'm on the gurney, and we're and the sirens going, and and I look up at her, and she's and I can see by her face um, that she's scared. And, and as soon as she looks down at me, cause I must have moved her, her game face goes back on and she's still in the radio. And now my pain is so bad again that because I'm not meditating, I dive right back inside my pain again. Only when I go back inside myself, I close my eyes to go back to control my pain. I am not in my body anymore. I close my eyes and I am in the tunnel and I'm outside in the tunnel and, and down, down flies, comes, floats, uh, my angel my angel of death and this time i know this is who this is and i understand what's going on and the voice is saying come home come home we love you come home it's time to come home and and it reaches and it takes me and i start to go with it and then i think to myself well wait a second i'm paying attention this time i should check it out i should check out i should look back inside myself and see if people are prepared for me to leave and so I so I turn my my mind away from the from the angelic presence, which is like the like a portion of the totality of the divine. It's like a representation of it, and and I turn toward myself and I look inside and I see my wife and I think, oh, she's going to be fine. She she's a strong, smart person. She doesn't she loves me, but she doesn't need me. She's expecting this, and I and I know that sounds kind of crazy, but but we talked about it a lot, and. And she knew, she knew, she knows that my heart belongs to God. My, I, this is a side effect of my near-death experience is I belong to the divine. I, that is my beloved. That is my lover. And so I then looked at my son and I could see his face and his anguish. And I thought, oh, my God, he is not ready for me to go. And then I look at my daughter and the baby and I think, who's going to protect them? Who's gonna be the father for this kid? Who's gonna, who's gonna be there for her? And I look back up to the divine angel and it, it had receded and it came rushing back toward me and I just turned away and I went back in my body again. And I, I chose my granddaughter is really, I chose my kids, but I chose my granddaughter because she needed a, a father in her life. And I knew that she was not going to have one. I could see what her life would be without me. I could see what her life would be with me. And I chose to continue living. And when I got to the catheterization lab, the the you know, the surgeon checked my chart as they rushed me into the lab. And he said, "This guy doesn't have any morphine on board." And I said, "No, no morphine." And he said well you can hear me I said yeah I can hear you how do you manage your pain meditation um, well if you're gonna give you something for the pain I said no I don't want anything for the pain I said is the surgery gonna hurt he said no you know you're gonna stick a tube up your arm you can feel it and we're gonna go inside your heart it's not gonna hurt at all I was like okay no morphine I'll meditate through the thing and then I continued meditating for the next eight hours and then exhausted in the icu they i begged them for something else they didn't give me opiates i don't know what they gave me but they gave me something i my mind was exhausted and i couldn't do it anymore and um turns out i had a lot of damage in my heart because i was outside the golden hour by the time i got to the hospital it was two and a half hours later so i had a lot of damage and when i came to The next day and got out of the ICU and was in a bed somewhere, I learned that the doctor at the urgent care center had told my son to say goodbye to me. Because I was going to die on the way. Mm -hmm. And uh, that still brings a tear to my eye. But after that event, I'd been... I, I, I've been a, I've been a, a hiding, a pastor. I've been a mystic hiding in the United Church of Christ for 20 years. Uh, I, I was a good, I was a good minister because I, I was, I, I didn't follow the rules. I followed the love. And so I was good at what I did. And then I, I went into TV and I went into radio for 15 years and, and, and after my heart attack, after doing this show for 15 years, the show got the new the TV station was purchased and my show got closed. And and so within two years of, of dying the second time, my career changed and I found myself more willing to dedicate the whole of my life which I had been doing anyway. Even when I kept this a secret, it was leaking out all over me all the time. The deeper I drove my mind and my heart inside myself, the larger the space I carved for the presence of the divine. And the, the, uh, until I found the in tap and the out tap and could open both taps at the same time with this carved space and let the radiance that is not me guide my life and those around me to the best of my ability. And after my second death, I decided I can't go back inside the church again. I never fit in the first place. I'm not a theologian. I'm a mystic. I belong to the divine. I've got to figure out how to tell people that mysticism is an ancient thing and all mystics speak the same language. It doesn't matter if they spoke Persian or Cantonese or or old German or Aramaic. Every mystic speaks metaphor. We all speak the same language metaphor, myth, symbol, and negation simile and 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 therefore, when you understand that, it opens the doors to every mystic that ever wrote in every religion everywhere. And so I am trying to help people understand that you don't need a near-death experience. And I don't recommend it because I'll tell you, the reintegration is awful. Yes. But you don't need one because you already have, half the people I know have had a kind a type a level of a mystical experience where they shift from believing to knowing. Yes. And it's global. And I think that I think and I can't prove this yet, but I did I I spent after my show closed, my my TV show closed, I I spent 18 months uh, preaching in the congregations that would have me in New England. Uh, Episcopalian myth Episcopalians with mystics at their at you know as the priest and uh, Unitarians with mystics as the priest and United Church of Christ with mystics as the priest and I was I was I'm well known in New England and because of my show and so but also I'm also a troublemaker in denominationalism I, 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 I I'm a known nonconformist, <laughs> and so not every pulpit would have me and so I quizzed every congregation before I spoke and they all knew what I was there to talk about. That's why they were there. And I would ask them who here has ever had a visitation from the dead and half the people in every single congregation, 50% of the people there had had a visitation. And then I asked them, who has ever talked about it with somebody. Everybody had talked about it with somebody who'd ever talked about it in church. Nobody. Huh. Nobody talks about their mystical experiences in the in the religious settings where it should be safe to do so but it's not. And so I realized when I when this happened and and maybe churches in general attract more people who are willing to put up with the BS of the denominationalism in order to find a container for their spirituality that is born of experience and not talk about it. But if 50% of those people are, there must be this very large population globally of people who've been at the very least visited by the dead, whether they're Jans or or Jews or Zoroastrians and, 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 and communicated telepathically that I'm okay, I love you, I forgive you, or I can't wait to see you or I'll come and get you, whatever the telepathic message is that is this download of direct divine light love that individuals have that when you speak about it, it loses its power out loud. But when you remember it, you now know that your deceased loved one is not dead. You know that one waits for you. And if you believed in the afterlife before, you don't anymore because now you know for that person that that's real and that is mystical experience and that leaves a mark inside you that that is that is taboo to speak about and i i want to make normalize mystical conversation in the age of science because great things are happening in science science is driving spirituality on a global scale because Medicine is raising the dead through resuscitation and surgeries and in ambulances all over the world. And there are tens of millions of near-death experiencers who who, who took a cheater's route into the divine presence and at a minimum come back knowing that their consciousness does not arise inside their body. And now at this period in the history of the world, we are becoming empowered to talk about this. And I'm I'm my dedication for the rest of my life is to do this thing so that others can find the courage to speak up because we're we're doctors and lawyers and judges and we're senators and teachers and um, taxi drivers and candy makers. We are everybody everywhere all over the world and every culture and and as many near death experiences as there are, if we can get them to speak up to just talk about it with their neighbors. Because always in the church somebody had had an NDE and was afraid to talk about it. There was always one or two people there who had come that day because they knew I was there, and then I would then it would turn out that everybody knew somebody who had a near-death experience. And if they would talk about it, if we talk about it, then that hundreds of millions of people who are naturally born mystics. Who have divine experience, an angel visitation, an out-of-body experience, an indwelling, whatever it is, something where, where it has a beginning and an end, something that happens to you, it's passive, it, it's grace that, that uplifts you, and, and it leaves a, a noetic understanding inside your soul. A wisdom that is a mark inside you that's undeniable and that it's in it's inarticulable, it's ineffable. You can't say it. That's a mystical experience. And the, if we can talk about the reunion of science and spirituality in the 21st century, we can we can eliminate literalism. We can eliminate the idolatry of literalism, and actually experience the divine presence inside us. And when 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 we When we carve the space inside ourselves, when we quiet the egoic mind, when we find that place of peace inside ourselves again and again and again and expand that place, we then begin to see the divine light inside ourselves, which gives us the strength to see it in others. And when we gather together, it magnifies itself. It's like, it's like my rabbi friend would say, you know, when there are two rabbis in the room talking about it, there are three opinions. And what he <clears> meant was the divine presence is there as well. And, and, and that's the dwelling place. If, if a person pursues their spirituality by aiming at the oneness of being, the divine presence lives inside the life, your life, like a radiance that infects everything around you. It's not like every choice I make is a good one. But it's like every choice I make that I bring inside this envelope of light works out for the good in the long run anyway. And and even if it doesn't, even if I make a bad choice and slide into second base and blow my leg apart because I didn't know the base was spiked not theoretical okay that was not that was actually happened it's like a bad (laughs) choice that day even though that cost me money and put me in the hospital and made my family upset even though i made a bad choice in that moment i still had the divine presence with me and that still carried through every single moment of that experience and the course of my life that that followed on after that, and so even though I didn't choose to go into the the most illuminated door, I could have. I've spent my life through my 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 secretly okay. I'm talking about it now, but only because I want to try to help people find the same thing inside themselves, it, I, by leaning into the light, in practices of c- contemplation. And in actions in the world, we not only bring more light into ourselves, we bring more light into the world, and we strengthen our divine connection, which which makes us closer to home every single breath. And and it, well, that's about it, I guess.
0: That says a lot. Aim at the oneness of being. And lean into the light. Yes. What a remarkable story. Peter Panagor is sharing his story on his own journey and really your experience of heaven and that entire journey in consciousness and following love, literally coming back for love and knowing that and wanting to assist others in doing this so it is an amazing story and so comforting for all so we actually hope everyone has enjoyed this space with you enjoyed hearing your story i absolutely am thrilled by these stories because it just again it's that mysticism that the 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 shifting from believing something to truly knowing something And this is what you are here to have everyone experience without the near death experience. So I love the tools that you have learned along the way from the Kriya yoga, interior yoga, as you call it, and the in tap and the out tap so that we can let radiance guide our life. So we are doing A very cool zoom webinar a mastery empowerment course with you peter panagore and we can have those who are interested in learning these techniques join you can you share a little bit about what you're going to cover in this time together
1: sure i'd like that two types of meditation one is uh as I mentioned, a combination of Tha- zazen, Trappist, and Maharishi Mahayogi. It's a, a form of self-emptying. It's a it's heartfulness meditation. It's centering prayer. It's uh, a mindfulness practice of using your breath and your mind to. Jitsu your mind into silence use use language and use the breath to stop the language of your mind and the story that we tell ourselves and to cultivate a space a deepening space of peace inside oneself in a cumulative way that through daily practice impacts daily living in the short term and creates a an empty vessel in the long term and in the yoga form, I took Paramahansa Yogananda's word for it that if I practiced my breath with a focus on my chakras, with no imagination, just with attention, that the science of yoga would reveal them to me and that's what happened to me. And so I I practice a form of physical yoga, um, but really I'm after teaching people how to find their subtle body and their chakras without having to know their names or their functions or their colors or anything about them, because it's not about head knowledge. I've spent my life in pursuit of head knowledge, but only as an assist to the pursuit of heart knowledge. It's really about the practicing techniques of divine presence and when one practices those techniques of divine presence the divine becomes present and then the knowledge is more about unlearning than it is about learning it's more about being than it is about doing but it carries into the doingness of life so we'll be practicing some easy yoga forms um, and some sitting meditation forms and have some conversation Uh, and i will tell you what i learned over the years of my private practice and how to not only charge your chakras but how to move your prana and chi inside yourself uh, to outside yourself
0: fascinating all right so that is a mastery empowerment course The link to this is on this web page. Sign up for that and you will get the connection link for Zoom. I really find it fascinating your experience here with these tools, these techniques of divine presence. And when we're talking about the chakras, I mentioned, I wrote this down earlier, you said that chakras are real. So from your experience on your journey and in the final moments of our call, can you clarify a little bit more about your understanding of the chakras? Would you say that this is really our spiritualness, our energetic spirit? coming in linking into our body is that how you see it or how would you describe or explain that
1: i see it as myself mm. i see my body is not myself i see my I'm using my body to find myself and so the it's it's inexp i can't say what they are but I think that you can feel what they are. They are these these they they. When I first started looking for them, they were like, they were like, small balls or plates inside me. And over years of practice of of staring at them, they became like tubes that run through me, tubes that run from outside of my front and out my back, and and run from my from my one root up outside my head, up out above me my head and outside my face and and i they are this they are me that is me that's that's me and it, it by accessing my chakras i don't i want to clarify and say i don't use my chakras and this radiance to manipulate the environment in which i find myself i just try to radiate it inside myself And that radiation inside myself impacts my entire life, my interior life and my exterior life. And so these I I practice finding them individually. I've practiced linking them together. I practice running them out to my hands. So if you this is I'll give your, your, your people an experiment right now. So if you take your hands and you hold them in front of you and you hold your palms an inch apart and you close your eyes and you rub your palms an inch apart up and down up and down up and down do you feel anything between your hands do you feel the do you feel that radiance there do you feel it in your palms the tingle between your palms the tingle there yes that's you that's that's you and yoga practice of this kind charges that and it can you once you drive it you can drive it into your hands and use your hands as a container for it and once you drive it into your hands you can then use your hands in your yoga practice as an extension of your chakras so you can run the breath and the mind through your chakras and into your hands and stretch it outside your body you can run it from left hand to right hand with your arms outstretched as a T form, or you can, you can run it from the balls of your feet, from the, pardon me, the centers of your feet up, you know, in a kneeling form from, the, from, the, from your feet to your, to your spine, to your crown, to your prayer hand, and move this thing around yourself. And the more you, it's not about self-realization with a little S. It's not about me. It's about self-realization with a capital S. It's about union with the divine. This access, the chakras are an access portal to the divine presence, which you are and which you are connected to, which I am and which I am connected to. And, And this divine presence can then be shared outside yourself. It's... Well, I don't know how I'd live without it.
0: (laughs) So beautiful. They are access portals to the divine, the chakras. They are you. This is your energy. Thank you for explaining that and illustrating that for us from your personal journey, from your knowingness inside. That is so beautiful. And for those who want to learn more on this, Peter will be discussing this and going over this and the meditations in a two hour mastery empowerment course, a Zoom webinar that I'll be joining him with coming up here shortly. Details are on this webpage. It will be recorded if you can't join live. And that is $33. And what a great! value for learning great information. Peter, this has been a beautiful show. We'll have you back and take some questions from our audience. I know that there will be experiences that they would like your insight on. And in the meantime, we just thank you for this and for your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lorraine. I appreciate being here
1: and I appreciate the audience being willing to listen. And I know that each one of you is made of goodness and light and the depth of your being. And you have this temple inside you.
0: Beautiful. When we see the world in the future, when more and more and more people get this and all of those who are listening to this show get this and understand them with this within themselves and are here now to assist others mm. but when you look forward peter at this world are you hopeful
1: i think our only hope is this i think yeah. that our our only hope I, I don't see that humanity has evolved much i mean 30,000 years ago the brain got bigger um according to uh, what I've been reading in anthropology, but we haven't really changed much as a human species. We're very tribal, we're warring, we're divided. And what would unite us, except for that which we already are on the inside. And now with this, the global great awakening, that near-death experience is creating, driven by science, I think it's our first chance to have a, a universal understanding, if we understand metaphor and, and we we step outside our camps, uh, and we step inside the divine presence itself, maybe we have a chance of being of not seeing of actually of actually seeing the light before we see the person. Let's
0: focus on that. Let's each take that away from our conversation today and truly contemplate what that means, or as Randy, our beloved brother, would say, quantumplate what that Mm. truly means to see the light in everyone before the human. With that perspective, seeing from that lens, that is the lens of love, and that is, No judgment. You mentioned judgment and your own judgment in this experience, your own judgment of yourself. And when we talk about being in higher dimensions, fifth dimension, there is no more judgment. So when we take this task of looking at others from the light that you see them as, we can see the light that they are. That really does assist us in removing judgments of others and ourselves. Mm-hmm.
1: And when you see, when you, when you measure yourself against the divine, un, unlimited purity, infinite causal consciousness, awesome intelligence, and see yourself, I see myself as little little, almost nothing in comparison Then my measurement against another who is like me, another human being well I don't measure that person against me I measure myself against the divine and so I see the other as as I am beloved and less than and yet, made of the same. And the deeper I carve the space inside myself, the 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 more I see the light inside of myself that isn't me. I mean, that I don't own. That isn't like I don't possess this thing. I am this thing. The and it's bigger than me. And the more I see it inside myself, the easier it is to see it in others. And 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 one of the side effects of having gone through my particular life review is that i see the i see my own brokenness i see my own suffering and my own brokenness and i see a great equality between mine and everyone else's because when i was dead there was no this thing i did was worse than that thing i did they were all the same all caused suffering. And, and so by understanding these two components, seeing the light inside the other and understanding my own brokenness is no greater or lesser than your brokenness, that creates inside of me a, a humility, a humility of similarity and Born of the of, of of these two components, that I'm made of love and goodness, and that at that love and goodness is infinite, and that I'm also, through no fault of my own, made a human being full of flaws, and beauty, and goodness. But I don't see when I was dead the way it looked to me was that every human being it was like it was like being on the moon and looking down at Earth and when you see a photograph of the earth from the moon it looks smooth and flat like a cue ball. But when you get close to the earth, there's all these mountains and Himalayas and the Rocky Mountains and the ocean and the and the trenches and and there's all this topography and and I don't see the topography anymore of human beings i and if I do see the topography i see it i see my own topography at the same time, and it's mm. it, and it's born it's born out of the oneness of being and
0: i i that's it I guess so beautiful and thank you for helping us each shift our perspective into that perspective Mm. through your eyes and your experience yes we are ready to aim at the oneness of being Mm. peter thank you so much for being here with that we are carrying this with fresh eyes looking at our world truly seeing if we can hold this and experience it and carving that space out within ourselves thank you for sharing this beautiful message of love and light
1: thanks loren thanks for having me
0: and we do want to say check out peter panagore's youtube channel not church sundays and see how you like that inspirational messages for our times. You can also join us on our Mastery Empowerment Course. The link to that is on this webpage. Click Mastery Empowerment Course or Special Offer, and you will get that, and you will join us. We look forward to seeing you. Mm
1: -hmm. Thank you,
0: everyone. Thank you, Peter. Have a beautiful day, as I know you will. Mm -hmm.
1: You too, Lauren. Nice to have an opportunity to talk with you.
0: God bless and you. we will talk again. Thank you. Peace. Namaste. Blessings. Namaste. And now everyone, it is time to dance our way to the cosmic heart.
1: The conference is now completed. Goodbye.